Welcome, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lesson American History and Civics podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great symbolic patriots, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. Hosted by Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren, author of America's Survival Guide and Running Fanatic, this week we continue our very in-depth review of the Declaration of Independence. Why take so much time on the Declaration of Independence? Because the best way, really, the only way, to protect our liberty is to understand the foundation of our freedoms. And the Declaration of Independence is the bedrock of that foundation. If you missed prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. But if you don't mind, please join us right here and now. When we return, we will continue our exploration of the world-altering sentence that begins, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, unquote. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. I am Judge Michael Warren, and I am so pleased to return to our review of the Declaration of Independence. Before we do, just a quick update. For those of you who are, say, Star Trek fans, you will notice that all of a sudden there are improvements, well, at least changes, in the show. The original series jumps back and forth between Captain Pike and Captain Kirk with revisions to uniforms and the bridge. The Klingons start off kind of looking pretty much human, and then all of a sudden in the movies and in The Next Generation there are these skull ridges, and don't get me started on how they look in Discovery. The point is, effects get better, and so the continuity gets a bit disrupted. It happens all the time on TV and in the movies. Well, we are making some improvements here on the show. Better transition music. Amazing what you can do on GarageBand. And a new welcome and wrap-up by David. And he's reading our quotes, too. We are also going to have some guest narrators. Who knows? Maybe your host will even sound a little bit less monotone. Seriously, this podcasting thing takes a while to get used to. Like our country, we inspire to be the best, but it takes damn hard work. So be patient. We will strive to continue to improve. By the way, if you want to skip ahead and read about our Declaration of Independence and the Constitution in very general terms, please visit PatriotWeek.org on May 1st, which is both May Day, you know, Workers of the World Unite, and Law Day in America. In fact, Law Day was created to counteract May Day. Patriot Week posted a primer on the Declaration of Independence and the Federal Constitution. It also includes a review of the Constitution and the vital laws of Patriot Week's home state of Michigan. If you don't care about Michigan, that's fine. About half of the primer applies to anyone. The primer is called You and the Law, and please check it out at PatriotWeek.org under the Education tab, and under there, it's under Patriot Papers. Now to the meat of the episode. Our Declaration of Independence made America unique in many ways, not only by forging a new nation, but more importantly, by announcing to the world our commitment to certain first principles that would be our guide as we move forward. The second full sentence of the Declaration is as follows. Quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
unquote. This sentence embodies many revolutionary ideas. We have reviewed together who the, quote, we, unquote, was, that there is truth, and that some truths are self-evident, and that among those truths is that all men are created equal, quote, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, unquote. On our last regular episode, we explored the unalienable right to life. We discussed how, that through our modern sense of right and wrong, we expect governments to protect life. And we also explored that actually it was quite the opposite through most of human history. Death at the hands of government is ubiquitous across the globe in time. The next word in that phrase of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is liberty. Scholar Orlando Patterson explained in his book Freedom that, quote, Non-Western peoples have thought so little about freedom that most human languages did not even possess a word for the concept before contact with the West, unquote. Putting aside the Greeks for a moment, ancient cultures did not embrace the idea of liberty. For example, as related by J.B. Pritchard, Hammurabi's code has no reference to a free person. There are slaves and masters. Masters were not free. They were the subjects of the king who controlled all. As noted by David Hackett Fisher, Earl Warren Professor of History at Brandeis University, in his compendium, Liberty and Freedom. Quote, Other ancient cultures were even more distant from the ideas of liberty or freedom. Most were governed by tyrants, in the Greek sense of an absolute ruler whose will is law. The Greeks had a saying that in a tyranny, only one person is free. In such a world, freedom as a general principle is difficult even to imagine. Unquote. The word liberty in English is derived from the Latin word, it's a noun, libertus, and its adjective, liber. Libertus is actually the Roman goddess of freedom. She had a wand called a vindica and a cap called the pilus libertus. For a slave to be freed, he or she would be tapped with the wand and given the cap to wear as a symbol of freedom. In fact, the ceremony is the origin of our word manumission, which is the freeing of slaves. But have no mistaken belief that the ancient Romans actually believed in liberty the way that we consider it. They did not believe that people were endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. With regard to the Greeks, they had many different types of governments. Most of them did not even approach the idea of democracy or liberty. For those few ancient city-states that were in a democracy, it was a tyranny of the many versus the one. Aristotle explained, quote, The basis of a democratic state is liberty, which, according to the common opinion of men, can only be enjoyed in such a state. This they affirm to be the great end of every democracy. One principle of liberty is for all to rule and be ruled in turn. And indeed, democratic justice is the application of numerical, not proportionate equality. Whence it follows that the majority must be supreme and that whatever the majority approve must be the end and the just. Unquote. Okay, I get it. That sounded like Greek to me too. What Aristotle was saying is that liberty is found in majority rule. The people had the liberty to choose how to live their life, that is, by majority vote. But if the majority, for example, wanted to stop all people from worshiping Zeus, they could do that. If they wanted to execute a philosopher for corrupting the youth, they could do that. That's what happened to Aristotle's philosophical grandfather, Socrates. It's a great system, until you are outvoted. 
no minority rights here, and nothing unalienable about any of that at all. Quite the opposite. In ancient Rome, liberty implied inequality. People were granted different liberties according to their condition. Some had many liberties. Others had few. Many had none. When Rome was a republic, its citizens possessed the liberty of government by assembly, but in different ways according to their rank. Magistrates and senators had the liberty to speak. Citizens had the liberty to listen and vote. Servi had the liberty to look on, but they could not hear, speak, listen, or vote. Stated more simply, in Rome, people did not receive their rights from the gods, but the laws of Rome, in a very unequal way. English language speakers have a unique advantage. We actually have words for both liberty and freedom, and today they generally are understood to be interchangeable. By the time of the founding, they really were pretty much understood to mean the same thing, although, like so many words in English, they're often used together in the same sentence. For example, one might say, like I often do, that to preserve our liberties and freedom, we must understand our founding first principles and constitution. Originally, some ancient and even more modern languages and cultures focused on liberty, that is, being personally having certain rights given by law, and others used freedom which is more akin to the freedom of a group of people, an ethnic group or a nation, which were people then collectively free. The idea of freedom had been embodied in the idea of being born into freedom. That is, you were born into a free nation that was not subject to an empire or other subjugation. The Declaration of Independence, in essence, uses both concepts, but expands them as well. The Declaration of Independence declares that all people have unalienable rights. Each person, regardless of the nationality, have unalienable rights. This expands the old idea of freedom to include everyone in the world, regardless of their nationality. And everyone has the same rights. This breaks out of the old limits of liberty. Your rights are not dependent on your social status or where you were born or how wealthy you are. You have all the rights that there are. Today, when you hear the word liberty, I would wager a month's wages that what leaps to mind are the rights we associate with the Federal Bill of Rights, such as the rights to free speech and press, the right to petition the government, the right to the free exercise of religion, the right to assembly, the right to bear arms, the right of due process, and the right to remain silent. And we will deal with all these issues when we review the Constitution. Patience, my young Padawan, we will dive deeply into each of these areas. In the meantime, may the Force be with you. But today's episode will be at a higher level. So what is liberty? Let's begin by looking at what it is not. Sometimes understanding what life looks like without something is more powerful than trying to dryly describe something philosophically. We're going to look back at three distinct historical periods and examples. Since we have already have had a high level understanding of ancient times, we're gonna focus on more modern examples, terrible, horrible examples. When we are done with this unholy trinity we will return to England and America and trace the development of the ideas of liberty through the Declaration of Independence. Our first unholy example is Fascist Italy. We have a guest star who will take us through it, my dear friend Michael Skonechny. Don't ask me how to spell that. I've known him since high school and I have no clue. Since every other boy in our generation was named Mike, we distinguish him by calling him Skin. Skin has a dear love of liberty. I will dub this segment Mike's Minute except the problem is uh, we got to get real, it will be more than a minute. So we will go on with the moniker Skin's Segment. There's a ring to that, isn't it? Skin, take it away.
Thank you, Mr. Uh, Judge Warren. Guess I have to get used to using that title when I'm doing this podcast. All right, so let's get to it. Now, you might know or have a vague recollection from high school or just from popular culture in general that before there was a Hitler, there was a Mussolini. Benito Mussolini. He was the founder of fascism, and he took power as prime minister in Italy on October 29th, 1922, days after he marched his own paramilitary army, the Black Shirts, into Rome and intimidated the government into giving him power. Now, how he got there is a fascinating story, but I guess that's for another podcast. Um, basically, Mussolini explained that individuals were subservient to the state, that the state was everything, that, quote, everything within the state, nothing against the state, nothing outside the state. It is only the state that gives people a consciousness of itself, unquote. Mussolini explains in his work, The Doctrine of Fascism, that liberty only had meaning if it was serving the state. Individual liberty was a cancer and a curse. Quote, for fascism, the state is absolute. Individuals and groups relative. Individuals and groups are admissible insofar as they come within the state. The state guarantees the internal and external safety of the country but it also safeguards and transmits the spirit of the people, elaborated down the ages in its language, its customs, its faith. The state is not only the present, it is also the past, and above all, the future. Transcending the individual's brief spell of life, the state stands for the eminent conscious of the nation. The forms in which it finds expression change, but the need for it remains. Unquote. Did you get that? The state is everything, and the individual is nothing. In the view of Mussolini, liberty was not something possessed by the individual, or even by groups of people, or by a country's entire population. It was something held by the state. He continues. Quote, and if liberty is to be the attribute of living men and not of abstract dummies invented by individualistic liberalism, then fascism stands for liberty and for the only liberty worth having, the liberty of the state and of the individual within the state. The fascist conception of the state is all-embracing. Outside of it, no human or spiritual values can exist much less have value. Thus understood, fascism is totalitarian, and the fascist state, a synthesis and a unit inclusive of all values, interprets, develops, and potentates the whole life of a people. The fascist conception of life accepts the individual only so far as his interests coincide with the state. Fascism reasserts the rights of the state, if classical liberalism spells individualism, fascism spells government. Unquote. If you want to know what a dictator is thinking, just listen very carefully to what they say and write. They're usually pretty open about what they want to do. Mussolini was about having an all-powerful state that would use individuals as it needed. 
People have no right to liberty. They just serve the state. In practice, the Italian fascists were cruel and brutal, although significantly less harsh than in fascist Germany or in the Soviet Union at the time. But the bottom line is that individual liberties were not respected in fascist Italy. Political opponents were arrested or tortured. The infamous black shirts, in essence, became Mussolini's own internal security force. They, they had an interesting motto, Menefrego, which roughly translates to I don't give a damn. The black shirts were organized as an official part of the government in 1923 and were technically named Milizia Voluntera per la Securesta Nazionale, or the National Security Volunteer Militia. Then, there was the secret police, or technically, Organizzazione per la Vigilanza alla Repressione del Antifascismo, or the Organization for Vigilance and Repression of Antifascism, popularly known as the OVRA. And they were organized in 1927. And so you have the black shirts and the secret police together, ruthlessly suppressing the unalienable right to liberty. According to the History Learning site, Quote, one favored way of making people conform was to tie a troublemaker to a tree, force a pint or two of castor oil down the victim's throat, and force him to eat a live toad, frog, etc. This punishment was enough to ensure people kept their thoughts to themselves. Unquote. You might say, geez, that sounds terrible, but eh, not so bad. Well, think about it. Castor oil, frogs, you're going to get diarrhea, and then dehydrated, and then maybe even dead. Now look, although it took a few years for Mussolini to become the absolute and unopposed ruler in Italy, once he consolidated his power, he eviscerated free speech, closing all non-fascist newspapers. He crushed opposition parties, canceled elections, outlawed unions and strikes, and replaced them with fascist syndicates, that is, trade unions, and thereby took control over the whole economy. He replaced local elective leaders with his appointees, instituted forced deportations, and shoot-to-kill orders at the borders. He set up kangaroo courts to prosecute political opponents, and the opposition party leaders were either tried or imprisoned or simply murdered on the streets. He controlled the media, the economy, the courts, the political process, and he even imposed fascist controls in the schools. And get this, the government actually changed the language. The word you, when used formally, was lay. So someone would say, oh, Benito, you are so awesome. They would use lay for you. Well, Mussolini thought that lay might be Spanish in origin and sounded too effeminate. So he literally banned the use of lay and replaced it with the much more masculine-sounding voix. Foreign words, streets, places were all replaced with Latin or Italian. Propaganda was rampant. Across the country, fascist slogans were all over. I mean, here's just a couple. Mussolini is always right. And better to live one day as a lion than a hundred years as a sheep. Mussolini, he, he resurrected the ideal of Roman glory including replacing the handshake with the Roman salute. That's the Heil Hitler salute. The Nazis borrowed it from him. Actually, you know, we Americans had a very similar salute. 
It was called the Bellamy salute. And when we did the Pledge of Allegiance, that's what we would use. But we changed it to placing our hand over our hearts during World War II to distance ourselves from the Axis enemies. But I digress here. So the Italian fascists also banned suits, top hats, afternoon tea. And they changed the counting of years back to using Roman numerals. Dubbed Il Duce, Mussolini was enormously popular, drawing humongous crowds. The charismatic leader would be met with chants of, El Duce is always right, and believe, obey, fight. Opponents of El Duce labeled his regime totalitarian, but he liked that term, and he used it to support his regime. In his speech of the Ascension on May 26, 1927, Mussolini defended the crackdown on liberty as necessary and proper. Quote, Is this terror, gentlemen? No, it is not terror. It is just rigor. And maybe not even that. It is social hygiene. It is prophylaxis on a national level. These individuals are being removed from circulation just as a doctor quarantines an infected person. Opposition is not necessary for the functioning of a healthy political regime. Opposition is foolish, superfluous in a totalitarian regime like the fascist regime. But we have opposition within ourselves, dear gentlemen. We are not old nags that have to be spurred. We control ourselves severely. We always find opposition in all affairs, in the objective difficulties of life, which gives us a huge mountain of opposition, which could exhaust spirits even superior to my own. Therefore, let no one hope that after this discourse, anti-fascist newspapers will be seen. No. Nor that the resurrection of anti-fascist groups will be allowed. In Italy, there is no room for anti-fascists. There is room only for fascists and for non-fascists. And only when they are upright and exemplary citizens. Unquote. So, there you have it. Like so many governments before and after, the Italian fascists, they reject the idea of individual liberty. Instead, they believe that all people should serve the state. I mean, honestly... We should be thankful for the liberty that we have today. Well, that's it. Warren, I mean, Judge Warren, back to you. Thanks, Mike. I mean, Skin. Well done. Let's skip a few decades and across the globe to Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge. Khmer, by the way, was an ancient, glorious kingdom. And Rouge means red. The history of the rise to power of the Khmer Rouge is too complex for us here. But suffice it for our purposes that they were a communist insurgency which was able to take power after a dreadful civil war. Led by Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge renamed the country Kampuchea, which means the People's Republic of Cambodia. Borrowing from the French Revolution, they declared that the year they took power, 1975, was year zero. They wanted to create a utopian paradise of farmers. Where well, their attempt at heaven became hell. Jean-Louis Margulon summarizes the ideology of the Khmer Rouge. Quote, Despite Pol Pot's limitations, it's the cultural revolution and the great leap forward 
that looked like mere trial runs or preparatory sketches for what was perhaps the most radical social transformation of all, the attempt to implement total communism in one fell swoop. Without the long transitional period that seemed to be one of the tenets of Marxist-Leninist orthodoxy, money was abolished in a week. Total collectivization was achieved in less than two years. Social distinctions were suppressed by the elimination of entire classes of property owners, intellectuals, and businessmen. And the ancient antagonism between urban and rural areas was solved by emptying the cities in a single week. It seemed that the only thing needed was sufficient willpower, and heaven would be found on earth. Pol Pot believed that he was sufficient willpower, and heaven would be found on earth. Pol Pot believed that he would be enthroned higher than his glorious ancestors, Marx, Lenin, Stalin, Mao Zedong, and that the revolution of the 21st century would be conducted in Khmer, just as the revolutions of the 20th century had been in Russian and then in Chinese. In reality, Khmer's rogue mark in history will always be written in blood. Unquote. There was no pretense of liberty. The Khmer Rouge took total control of the society. As noted above, they made the Soviets and Chinese communist regimes look like junior varsity compared to their professional totalitarian state. Unlike the Nazis and the Italian fascists, much of former Cambodia did not possess major arms, a professional army, high technology, or a trained bureaucratic elite. They didn't have a complex propaganda machine or a cult of personality. In fact, Pol Pot was barely seen or known, which makes the Khmer Rouge's all but unchallenged authority and the ability to control the lives of their population all the more terrible and amazing. Pinyate, in his book, Stay Alive, My Son, described the villainy as follows. Quote, There were no prisons, no courts, no universities, no schools, no money, no jobs, no books, no sports, and no pastimes. There was no spare moment in the 24-hour day. Daily life was divided up as follows. 12 hours for physical labor, 2 hours for eating, 3 hours for rest and education, and 7 hours for sleep. We all lived in an enormous concentration camp. There was no justice. The Khmer Rouge regulated every moment of our lives. The Khmer Rouge often used parables to justify their contradictory actions. They would compare people to cattle. Watch this ox as it pulls the plow. It eats when it is ordered to eat. If you let it graze in a field, it will eat anything. If you put it in another field where there isn't enough grass, it will still graze uncomplainingly. It is not free and it is constantly being watched. And when you tell it to pull the plow, it pulls. It never thinks about its wife or children. Unquote. You might be thinking, that sounds as bad as it ever can get. No, it can always get worse. In addition to people being stripped of all their personal property, Jean-Louis Margolin explains, Quote, All education, all freedom of movement and trade, 
all medicine worthy of the name, all religion, and all writing disappeared. Strict dress codes were imposed. People had to wear black, long sleeve shirts buttoned up to the neck. There were also strict codes of behavior. All public displays of affection were banned, as were arguments, insults, complaints, and tears. All figures of authority were to be blindly obeyed. People were forced to attend interminable meetings, and while there, to look alert, shout disapproval or appropriation on command, and to voice public criticism of others or themselves. The 1976 Constitution for the Democratic Capuchia specified that the first right of all citizens was the right to work. Many of the new people never received any other rights. Unquote. In the end, the Khmer Rouge only lasted three years and eight months. And what it did at that time can never be forgotten. It created re-education centers for political prisoners, including children, Buddhist monks, suspected travelers, and others who were starved, died of disease, or simply executed. Massive deportations occurred. The cities were emptied, and former city dwellers were forced to live in the countryside as farmers. Soon, total collectivization took hold, dividing the people into poor peasants, landed peasants, rich peasants, and former traders. Those who were former army, police, civil servants, and intellectuals were killed off in waves. Women and children joined their dead husbands. Children were used as informants. There were no courts or legal procedures, just accusations and arbitrary punishment, including flogging, deportation, work reassignment, prison, and of course, summary execution. Then the communists turned on themselves. Internal purges led to the torture and execution of high-ranking communist officials and massacres of entire villages. The Khmer Rouge were so bad that it was only stopped when the brutal dictatorship of communist Vietnam invaded and overthrew the tyranny. The total body count is unknown, but best estimates place it between 750,000 to 2 million, with most going with the 2 million. That means between at least one in every seven, or maybe up to one in every four Cambodians died. Monks were targeted, the press annihilated, intellectuals slaughtered, nearly 50% of the Catholic minority were exterminated, and Muslims suffered the same tragedy. In sum, the Khmer Rouge turned the idea of liberty inside out. Men and women were not free, they were cattle to be slaughtered on the slightest whim. Now, remember when I said things can always get worse? To prove the adage, let's look at something within the living memory of everyone listening to this podcast. To do so, we have another special guest. Brent Bassett is another dear friend of mine, and despite his history of switching careers and jobs, he has been a lifelong patriot and lover of liberty. Since he has a law degree, we're going to call this segment Brent's Brief. Brent, take it away. ISIS was a terrorist militant group, an unrecognized state that followed a fundamentalist Salafi jihadist doctrine of Sunni Islam. What exactly that means is for another podcast series. For us, we just need to know that they believed that they knew what Allah's will was and was willing to kill anyone who didn't share their view so they could obtain worldwide domination. In 2014, ISIS conquered large swaths of Iraq and Syria. Soon, they engaged in beheadings, purposeful slaying of non-believers, enslavement of girls and women as sex slaves, and the destruction of cultural heritage sites. 
when it won territory, it proclaimed itself as the Muslim Caliphate, pretending it had authority over Muslims across the globe, and imposed a theocracy of the most pernicious type on the people it claimed were under its rule. German journalist Jürgen Todenhofer, who was embedded with the group for 10 days, reported that they wanted to, quote, conquer the world, unquote, and kill all non-believers, that is, anyone who did not agree exactly with their theology. According to Todenhofer, they believed that all religions who agree with democracy have to die, and by their incredible enthusiasm, including enthusiasm for killing hundreds of millions of people. The United Nations Commission on Human Rights found that ISIS, following the extreme form of Islam called Wahhabism, it created a religious police state that punished what it considered to be vice, failure to attend religious services, and failure to adhere to religious practices. They destroyed non-Sunni religious buildings and widely employed capital punishment. They intended to conquer the world, imposing the extreme form of Islam on everyone, or killing them. Quote, Seeks to subjugate civilians under its control and dominate every aspect of their lives through terror, indoctrination, and the provision of services to those who obey. Unquote. ISIS required everyone to follow their interpretation. They enforced this order through education, recruitment, a general police force, morality police forces known as Al-Hisbah, and the Al-Qansa Brigade, and their courts. We tend to forget that ISIS actually created what many would consider a government. It issued birth certificates, picked up the trash, and had a department of motor vehicles. More chillingly, it had a judicial system that butchered non-believers. Yuri Mantilla, in a Law Review article published in the Liberty University Law Review, explained the terror. Quote, ISIS's killing of Christian minorities included the slaying of 37 Iraqi Christians attending a church worship service. ISIS burned an 80-year-old Assyrian Christian woman to death because she refused to submit to the Islamic State interpretation of Sharia law and wear appropriate clothing. ISIS captured an Assyrian Christian man who refused to convert to Islam, tied him to a truck, and drove away with the man dragging behind them until he died. Other examples include when ISIS terrorists executed Anglican Christian children because they refused to convert to Islam and when ISIS raped Assyrian Christian women because they were Christian and refused to convert to Islam. A number of Iraqi Christian children were crucified as a form of punishment for their religious beliefs. In Syria, ISIS has slain at least 175 known and thousands of unknown Christians. In the city of Aleppo, where Syrian Christians refused to renounce their faith and convert to Islam, ISIS terrorists slaughtered them by decapitating eight and crucified four. ISIS captured a large number of Christians from churches, schools, and homes, and then murdered or used them as human shields while fighting opposition groups. Unquote. And really, this is just the tip of the iceberg. No need to belabor the point. The body count wasn't nearly as bad as the Khmer Rouge, and it didn't have the time on earth that the Italian fascist regime did, but it was brutal for the small amount of time it had. Thankfully, they have been all but wiped out, but if they had their way, 
billions would be dead or enslaved. ISIS was perhaps the worst and most recent example of a long list of treacherous, oppressive governments that destroyed the liberty of their own citizens. Judge Warren, back to you. Thanks for that brilliant bombast, Brent Bassett. We have learned about how much of the world, before and after 1776, rejected liberty. However, the founding generation turned the world topsy-turvy by boldly declaring that men had an unalienable right to liberty and founding a government on that belief. By 1776, the colonists, of course, were considered Englishmen, and England had a long tradition of recognizing certain rights and privileges. As we discussed a few episodes ago, although some philosophers had argued that these rights were unalienable, that is not really how the English thought of them at all. Instead, they were rights recognized as the result of centuries of conflict between the British Crown and the Parliament. Most of the rights first protected only the Parliament or nobility, but over time some of them were extended to more and more of England's people. Since this podcast is not a history of England, we will be giving the Cliff Notes version of many centuries of legal development. You may have heard the term Magna Carta. Actually, there are a few English documents referred to as a Magna Carta, but the first and the most famous and the most important one arose in 1215, 1215. The king, appropriately known to history as Bad King John, and his nobles were engaged in a protracted power struggle among each other. John was arrogant and tried to assume a great deal of power. He was also incompetent. That is, of course, the worst of combinations, arrogant, ambitious, and incompetent. Most of the noble class would have none of it and resisted with arms. Suffice it to say that bad King John was in a very bad spot and was on the verge of losing his throne, if not his life, unless he conceded to recognize that the nobles had certain rights. At Runnymede, near Windsor, on June 15th, 1215, he signed the Magna Carta Libertarium, which means Great Charter of Freedoms. The Magna Carta had some unique aspects. First, it was written, which was basically unheard of. Second, it acknowledged that the king would be bound by certain rules into perpetuity. Third, it listed out specific rights that the nobles had. And fourth, it even established a 25 council of nobles to ensure much of its implementation. Not all of its promises lasted long, but it set a precedent that reached across the centuries. In fact, some of the rights continue to this day. For example, it recognized the right to due process of law. In other words, life, liberty, and property could not be taken unless it was authorized by a legitimate law. It also recognized that the English church should be free. It laid out rules of inheritance and guardianship for nobles, the liberty of widows not to be compelled to remarry. It prohibited the seizure of property for debts if the debtor could pay another way. It required that the courts be held in fixed places. It defined the jurisdiction and venue of certain courts. It had the seeds of the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. Section 20 provided specifically, quote, For a trivial offense, a free man shall be fined only in proportion to the degree of his offense, and for a serious offense correspondingly, but not so heavily as to deprive him of his livelihood, unquote. It protected from seizure certain property without consent. It limited imprisonment for certain people to a year in connection with a felony. It had the groundbreaking provision, number 39, that, quote, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any way, nor will we proceed with force against him 
or send others to do so, except by the lawful judgment of his equals by the law of the land, unquote. That is an awkward way of establishing a trial by jury. In addition, it had the origin of the right to a speedy trial, quote, to no one we will sell, to no one deny or delay right or justice, unquote. It protected the right to leave and return to the kingdom, quote, unharmed and without fear, except in time of war, unquote. It required that any appointees for justices, constables, sheriffs, and other officials must know the law and, quote, are minded to keep it well, unquote. Hmm. That's an interesting one. We might want to bring that one back. It restored property, liberties, and rights that were seized without lawful judgment of his equals and set up a council of 25 barons to see this was done. Most of these protections were for the barons only, and many were quickly discarded. However, they set a marker for liberty that eventually expanded vigorously for all. A few centuries later, a clash between the king and parliament began over the direction and funding of a war with Spain, and that resulted in the issuance of the Petition of Right in 1628. The petition was the brainchild of Sir Edward Coke. No, he did not invent Coca-Cola, but he was the greatest jurist of the age. Interestingly, the petition was just that, a petition of demands from the Parliament. What makes it significant is that King Charles I accepted the petition, and it was viewed as part of the constitutional law of England, even though it was often ignored. The petition explained that a prior law had been passed banning forced loans, but that King Charles I did just that to fund a war against Spain. In other words, he compelled people to lend him money. It also explained that, quote, no man of what estate or condition that he be should be put out of his land or tenements, nor taken, nor imprisoned, nor disinherited, nor put to death without being brought to answer by due process of law. Unquote. And that the king had violated that provision as well. The petition also declared that no one should be forced to pay a tax, quote, without common consent by act of parliament, unquote. It also proclaimed that no soldiers should be quartered among the citizens and that martial law should not be used in times of peace. Most scholars point next to the Habeas Corpus Act of 1679. The Latin term habeas corpus means, you shall have the body. The idea is that any prisoner has the right to be brought before court and released if he or she is unlawfully imprisoned. A writ of habeas corpus is a document that requires the authorities to bring the imprisoned person before the court. As a trial judge, I have signed many such writs to bring defendants into my courtroom. Although this writ had been recognized through English common law, and it's kind of alluded to in the Magna Carta and Petition of Right uh, when they deal with due process, the Habeas Corpus Act of 1679 lays it all out in very specific terms, including the specific processes by which the writ is to be executed and complied with, and it even gives a fee for mileage. After the Glorious Revolution, in which William III and Mary II became the King and Queen of England as the result of a revolt against King James II, the Parliament passed the Bill of Rights of 1689. In quick, the Parliament basically invited William and Mary to invade England to get rid of James, who they viewed as a dangerous tyrant. To make sure the cure was not worse than the disease, the Parliament passed an act declaring rights and liberties of the subject and settling the succession of the crown. 
Part of that act included the Bill of Rights, which expanded constitutional protections for the Parliament and the people. The Bill of Rights included protections of liberty, such as prohibiting the arbitrary enforcement of the law. In particular, it prohibited the king from suspending, discarding, or not enforcing the law. It required that no government money could be spent unless it was approved by the Parliament. It recognized the right to petition for redress of grievances when it declared, quote, that it is the right of the subjects to petition the king and all commitments and prosecutions for such petitioning are illegal, unquote. It prohibited a standing army without the consent of parliament. It guaranteed the right to bear arms, well, at least for Protestants. It ensured the free election of members of parliament. It also gave legislators governmental immunity for whatever they said in parliament. It all but wrote out the Eighth Amendment when it declared, quote, that excessive bail ought not to be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted, Unquote. It also protected the right to petition Parliament, and it required that Parliament should meet frequently. As Englishmen, the colonists believed in the depths of their souls that they possessed these rights and liberties. In fact, as colonists in the New World, they had basically been left free to do their own thing. The policy of salutary neglect mostly made it the policy of the empire to let the colonists run their own internal affairs. The colonists were basically the most free people in world history. But, as we will see in later episodes, the British Empire had a very different perspective on the rights of the colonists. And they certainly didn't believe that whatever rights the colonists had were unalienable or that the Creator had endowed them in all men. No. That would only happen in America, as expressed in the Declaration of Independence. The founders came to this understanding from a variety of sources, including English philosopher Thomas Hobbes. As we have discussed, he and others believed that rights were granted to us by the Creator. Among these natural rights was liberty. He explained what this meant in his epic, Leviathan. Quote, By liberty is understood the absence of external impediments. Which impediments may oft take away part of a man's power to do what he would, but cannot hinder him from using the power left him? According to his judgment and reason shall dictate to him. Unquote. In other words, natural law consists of the liberty to do or not do what one wants, subject to certain limits. Hobbes explained that the first law of nature was the right to self-defense, and the second law of nature was basically the golden rule, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That included to be free to do what you wanted, so long as you left others alone, were at all possible, within certain social norms. English philosopher John Locke echoed this sentiment in his second treatise of government. In the second treatise, he explained that natural law had vested in each person the right to liberty, he also explained that since all people were created by God with the same rights, that they should enjoy the same liberties. The idea of the inherent equality of mankind means all have the same unalienable rights. Quote, A state also of equality, wherein all the power and jurisdiction is reciprocal, no one having more than another, there being nothing more evident than that creatures of all the same species and rank, promiscuously born to all the same faculties, should also be equal one amongst another without subordination or subjection. Unquote. 
In other words, men, all being men, should have the same rights. Thomas Paine would, over a century later, more eloquently wax on this idea. Quote, Where I use the words freedoms or rights, I desire to be understood to mean a perfect equality of them. Let the rich man enjoy his riches, and the poor man comfort himself in his poverty. But the floor of freedom is as level as water. It can be no otherwise of itself, and will be no otherwise till ruffled by a storm." Unquote. Paine's enunciation of the equal liberty and freedom of all American citizens reflected the American sentiment brilliantly. We not only have liberty, but we all have the same liberties. But Locke was not quite done expanding on the idea of liberty. He took it one vitally important step farther by arguing that when there was a government, that to have true liberty, the government had to be based on the consent of the governed. Quote, In the state of nature, liberty consists of being free from any superior power on earth. People are not under the will or lawmaking authority of others, but have only the law of nature for their rule. In political society, liberty consists of being under no other lawmaking power except that established by consent in the commonwealth. People are free from the dominion of any will or legal restraint apart from that enacted by their own constituted lawmaking power according to the trust put in it. Unquote. So what exactly is this liberty that we should all enjoy? Again, we will cover the very specific enumeration of unalienable rights articulated in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights in particular in future episodes. Here, Locke defines it more broadly. Quote, Liberty is to be free from restraint and violence from others, which cannot be where there is no law and is not, as we are told, a liberty for every man to do what he lists. For who could be free when every other man's humor might domineer over him? But a liberty to dispose and order as he lists his person, actions, possessions, and his whole property within the allowance of those laws under which he is, and therein, not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but freely follow his own. Unquote. In fact, Hobbes and Locke agreed that the whole point of joining into a society and having a government, in the language of Locke, is, quote, the preservation of their lives, liberties, and estates, which I shall call by the general name property, unquote. When the British clamped down on the colonists, they moved from the old British understanding that the right to liberty was protected as an English right, and the revolutionaries transfigured it into a universal right of men, granted by the Creator. They took Locke and Hobbes seriously. They realized that under British rule, the government was not protecting unalienable rights. The British were subverting the whole purpose of government, and this unalienable right of liberty was worth fighting and dying for. In 1775, Son of Liberty Samuel Adams explained that the revolutionaries must, quote, preserve the common liberty, unquote, and that, quote, the public liberty must be preserved, though at the expense of many lives, unquote. As we will see in later podcasts, the whole reason for the revolution was to protect our inalienable rights, with liberty being the cornerstone right to be protected. This understanding explains why Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech 
was so powerfully resonating in America. Don't worry, we will return to that magnificent speech in another podcast. But this idea of liberty also explains why so much of the revolution was steeped in symbols involving liberty. Look at most of the human history and insurrections and civil wars and rebellions and revolts. They usually involve something about ethnic groups or religion, cults of personality, bloodlines, property, resources. There is barely a mention of liberty at all, but not in the American Revolution. It was all about liberty. In fact, when the revolutionaries gathered for their meetings, they did so around trees, and they called them, what else? Liberty trees. These were large trees in common areas of towns where colonists opposed British oppression. The first one was actually unveiled on August 14, 1765 in Boston, with the hanging of an effigy of the local tax collector of the stamp tax. On the effigy was a note, which had this little ditty. Quote, Fair freedom glorious, cause I've meanly quitted for the sake of self. But ah, the devil has me outwitted. And instead of staying orders, I've hanged myself. Unquote. Liberty trees appeared on many colonial flags. And there were also liberty poles. The problem with the trees was that they were stationary, and the British had a nasty habit of chopping them down. Liberty poles could move and be reconstructed over and over. The first one was erected in New York City. It was a tall mast that towered over the rooftops, adorned with stays and halyards, and the summit had a large board affixed to it. And on that board was a flagstaff with an inscription, quote, George III, Pitt and Liberty, unquote. The first Liberty Pole was erected on May 22, 1766, to celebrate the repeal of the Stamp Act. Eventually adorned with the flag of St. George, a gilded weather vane with the word Liberty in large letters, and a Liberty cap. The pole was derivative of the Libertas Wand of Liberty. Poles were used throughout the colonies. Then, of course, was the Liberty Bell. Its inscription, borrowing from the Bible, stated, quote, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all the inhabitants thereof, unquote. When the stamps enforcing the Stamp Act arrived, the Liberty Bell was, quote, mold and told, unquote, with great solemnity for the funeral of American rights. The bell was repeatedly used to rally opponents of British oppression in many instances leading up to the Declaration of Independence. Liberty appeared on the state seal of Virginia, adopted in 1776, and on the South Carolina state flag, adopted also in 1776. The word liberty is in the crescent moon. That's a great flag. If you haven't seen it, you should really check it out. Other expressions on behalf of liberty include, quote, don't tread on me, unquote, and rattlesnakes, which is a symbol of liberty. And those appeared on several state flags. The idea that the people had the inalienable right of liberty and that it was the duty of the government to protect it was clearly announced in the Declaration of Independence. Likewise, the state constitutions adopted in the wake of the Declaration proclaimed similar sentiments. As just one example, Article 1 of the Declaration of Rights of the Pennsylvania Constitution, also adopted in 1776, stated that, quote, All men have certain natural, inherent, and inalienable rights, among which are the enjoying and defending of life and liberty, unquote. The heart of the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution was the protection of the inalienable right to liberty. When we go through the grievances of the Declaration of Independence, this will become self-evident. 
as we will see in later episodes, it is also the heart of the Constitution. Some key takeaways from this episode. Up until 1776, no government embraced the unalienable right of liberty. In ancient times, most didn't even have a word for liberty. Those that did have some sense of liberty, like ancient Rome and Greece, did not believe it was inherent in all persons or an unalienable right. Although the English had some freedoms, they were viewed as the rights of Englishmen only, and they were not shared with all the citizens throughout the realm. Since 1776, tyrannical regimes like fascist Italy, the Khmer Rouge, and ISIS have squashed liberty and oppressed and massacred the people. The Declaration of Independence declared as a self-evident truth that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, including liberty. We were the first nation in world history to declare the unalienable right of liberty as a foundation for our government. Governments do not give us the unalienable right of liberty. It is bestowed upon us from the creator and nature nature's God. Liberty basically means to do as you would like, so long as you don't harm other people or society at large. Liberty was at the heart of the American Revolution. Fellow patriots, thank you for your time. Please join us next time when we continue our exploration of the Declaration of Independence, when we examine the meaning of the inalienable right of the pursuit of happiness. Until then, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, Patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. I'm David Drewicki, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give those five golden stars. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google, Anchor, and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leo Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook on our Patriot Week Foundation page and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If you are interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on the social media platforms I mentioned or connect with Judge Warren directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americassurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.